Well, hey, everybody, it's so good to be with you today. If you're joining us online for the first time, so glad you're here. My name is Jason Wooliver, and it's my privilege to be the pastor here at Crossroads, the directing pastor. And we're just so glad you joined us. This is week two in our Lenten message series, Moses in the Hand of God. And our scripture passage is Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. If you want to pull that up on your phone or uh, turn there in your Bible, hear this reading from God's Word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked among the river, or beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, fill our hearts, fill our homes. Speak to us, Lord, in the situations we are in, with the thoughts and the lives that we bring before you. Uh, Speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe that God creates every single person with the specific purpose of eternal importance for their lives. Just as God said to the prophet Jeremiah when he was very young, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And as God had a purpose for the prophet Jeremiah before he even formed him in the womb, God has a purpose for each of us before we are formed in the womb. And this purpose that God has for us, it will very much utilize our unique God-given personalities. We'll never fulfill our purpose by trying to be someone that we're not. God's purpose for each of us always points to God's glory. God doesn't have a purpose for us. It involves us having great glory or riches or a name for ourselves, and that being the end of it. God's purpose for each of us is for our good, but his glory. And God's purpose for us also requires our full cooperation. But usually, before a person begins living out their unique God-given purpose, there are hiccups along the way. And sometimes God even has to intervene and save the person from utter disaster. John Wesley, the dynamic founder of the Methodist movement, was himself spared in a very historically memorable way, which shaped his self-understanding the rest of his life. 
Wesley's father, Samuel, was a priest in the Church of England, and he was not very popular with his parishioners. In 1705, Wesley's dad had to go to debtor's prison because he couldn't pay his debts, while his wife, Susanna, kept the church together and raised their 19 children on her own. When Wesley got out of prison, some angry church folks got mad at him and tried to burn down the house with his family still in it. Samuel Wesley tried to get all the children out of the burning house, but they couldn't find young John. So the family gathered together in prayer in the lawn as the house burned, and they prayed that God would receive young John's soul into heaven. But then some neighbors spotted young five-year-old John Wesley in the second story window of the house. One of them got on the shoulders of the other, and they were able to help John Wesley, this five-year-old boy, safely come to the ground and be spared. As Wesley got older, he believed and shared with others that God had miraculously preserved him for a very specific purpose, which was raising up the people called Methodists, which would spread throughout the globe, the movement that we are a part of. And he referred to himself as a brand plucked from the fire. Wesley was known to say that those are the words that he wanted on his tombstone. Here lies a brand plucked from the fire. And there are many people who follow God with all of their hearts, who can point back to times in their lives when it looked like they might not make it, yet God intervened and rescued them. In Exodus chapter 2, we see not one but two stories of close escape in the life of Moses. We're looking at the first one today, which is the birth narrative of Moses. And we'll see that whereas John Wesley was a brand plucked from the fire, Moses was a babe plucked from the water. His name would actually mean drawn out of the water. So verse 1 says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So remember, Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel, and his descendants became the tribe or the house of Levi. So both of Moses' parents are from that particular tribe. We find out in Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, that their names were Amram and Jochebed. We also find out from later chapters in Exodus that when Moses was born, uh, Jochebed and Amram already had a three-year-old son named Aaron, and they had an older daughter named Miriam. And Miriam is a part of this story and very important in saving baby Moses. But Moses' birth took place after Pharaoh had ordered the general population of Egypt to throw any newborn Hebrew baby male into the Nile River. Remember, he hated the Jewish people. He felt threatened by their growth. So Pharaoh commanded, if a Hebrew baby is born, it's a male, throw him in the Nile. Of course, when that happened, the babies would either drown or be eaten by crocodiles. And since Egyptians believed that the Nile was a holy river, that it was sacred, they could justify throwing the baby Hebrew boys in as an act of sacrifice to their gods. But Jochebed, Moses' mother, in her desire to protect her baby, hides him as long as she can. But verse 3 says, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. 
She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So having hid Moses as long as she could, Jochebed knows that hiding him is no longer an option. He's too big for that. He's making too much noise. But she refuses to give up hope entirely. And so she gets an idea to do something creative. Now, commentators are quick to point out that the Hebrew word tebat, translated as basket in verse 3, is the same word translated as ark in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. And so that's the story of Noah's ark. So just as God saved Noah and his family from the waters of judgment through a tabat, so now Jochebed makes a tabat or a, a basket from the very bulrushes which would line the Nile River so that when she put the baby in it, he would be fairly camouflaged. And she waterproofs it with pitch, just as Noah waterproofed the ark with pitch. And then she sets him in the reeds, and it's quite fascinating. In a sense, she's actually submitting to Pharaoh's order to put the male children in the Nile, but she puts him in there in a way that there's still a chance he won't die. And then Miriam stations herself at a distance to keep watch on the baby to see what would become of him. Would he be eaten by crocodiles? Would he float down river? Would someone uh, hear him and take him? Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So one of Pharaoh's daughters shows up with her entourage to take a bath in the Nile. I assume it's a safe part of the Nile, or at least these women, uh, maybe they had uh, baseball bats to club crocodiles that got too close to Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know. We should assume that Pharaoh had an entire harem of wives, so this could be one of hundreds of Pharaoh's daughters. But as she's bathing in the river, she sees this strange basket sitting over there in the reeds. So she sends one of her servant girls to fetch it. When she gets it, she opens it, and there was baby Moses crying. And this is a moment of divine intervention. Moses's fate is entirely dependent upon the emotional reaction of Pharaoh's daughter. She immediately notices it's a Hebrew boy. She would have looked at it. He would have been circumcised. That was a mark of a Hebrew baby. She knows the command of her father to drown such babies upon birth. She could easily have gotten angry and said, drown him at once, this disgusting little thing. She could have felt bad and said, this is too bad, but rules are rulers. rules, throw him back in the river. But instead it says she took pity on him. Now observing that Pharaoh's daughter was looking upon the baby with pity, Miriam, Moses' sister, then jumps right in. Verse 7, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go! So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now this is a very interesting turn of events. Jochebed had tearfully put Moses in this basket, thinking she would never see him alive again. Now, a few hours later, she is summoned back to be his wet nurse by Pharaoh's daughter. 
And it gets even better. Verse 9, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, this is Jochebed, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So then the woman took the child and nursed him. So not only does Moses' mom get to be his nurse, but she's even going to be employed by Pharaoh's daughter. She's going to be paid to take care of her son who should be dead. And this obviously would have granted both the mother and the son full immunity. They are under Pharaoh's daughter's protection, employed by Pharaoh's daughter with Pharaoh's money, they're protected by Pharaoh's own law. This, my friends, is what we call the hand of God. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And the name Moses sounds like the Hebrew word for draw out. So Jochebed cares for Moses until he's weaned, probably around three or four. And then she returns him to Pharaoh's daughter, where he will be raised with all the benefits of royal privilege. Now, we're going to uh, look at another narrative from his uh, uh, story next week, which catches him up a couple decades later as he's living in Pharaoh's house before he goes to the wilderness. But let's talk about some applications from this birth narrative of Moses. First thing that we can learn from this is that in seasons of uncertainty, God usually gives us only the next step. In seasons of uncertainty, God usually only gives us the next step to take. When Moses' mother knew that she could no longer hide her baby, what options did she really have? She didn't have any good ones. And then something within her told her to make a tiny ark and waterproof it like Noah had and put the boy in it and just set him in the river in the reeds. She had no idea what to do beyond that or what would happen beyond that. Often when we are living through seasons of uncertainty in our lives, we get paralyzed not knowing what to do, not knowing what steps to take. We see all the complexities and hypothetical things that could happen and we freeze. When people come to me for prayer and counsel in such situations, I usually try to get them to listen for just the next step that the Holy Spirit would have them take. There's a verse in the writings of the prophet Isaiah, which says, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. And I believe this is typically how the Holy Spirit leads us. There may be occasions when God lays out the next five steps that we're supposed to take, but that's not the norm. But here's the thing about just taking the next step that God would have us take. It can change any number of other factors. It can change our emotions. Perhaps we take a step in obedience to God, and then we feel that wasn't so bad, or then we feel a confidence we didn't expect. Or we see caution signs uh, leading us to avoid a certain direction. Or perhaps as we take one step, the circumstances around us change. We have no idea if we take one step, how that will change the course of our lives. It could open up any number of new doors, cause us to meet any number of new people. One step. So if you're going through a season of uncertainty right now, ask the Holy Spirit 
to show you just the very next step to take. And then after you take that step, pause and look around. Say, how do I feel now? Say, who are the people around me? What are the circumstances around me? Has anything changed? And then listen for the next step and take the next step and pause and listen again. This is actually how God wants us to live. Yeah, there are a lot of things in life where the instructions about how to order our lives, they're just laid out plain in Scripture. But then in seasons of uncertainty, where the Scriptures don't exactly tell us what next step to take, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit one step at a time. And this is called walking in the Spirit. As Paul wrote in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit rarely says, do these five things in sequence. The Spirit usually says, do this thing. And if you do it, then he'll show you the next thing to do. Now, the second application we learn is in moments of opportunity, God calls us to unusual courage. In moments of opportunity, God calls us to unusual courage. If Jochebed gets the obedience award in this passage, then Moses' sister Miriam gets the courage award. After Moses was placed in the reeds, Miriam waited, stationed, and ready. It says in verse 4, his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. The word translated stand here is used elsewhere to describe military men standing in position, ready for action. She positioned herself and waited to see what would happen next. And as soon as she saw that Pharaoh's daughter's reaction was not anger or contempt, Miriam went way out on a limb. Before a decision could be made about what to do with this Hebrew baby, she moved in. Verse 7 says, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now at this point, the hatred of Pharaoh's regime toward the Jewish people was set down in law. The baby boys were to be murdered upon birth. And for a young Hebrew woman to approach Pharaoh's daughter without being summoned and suggest that Pharaoh's daughter might want to go against her father's wishes, holy cow, that was courageous, we might say foolhardy, and very dangerous. But it was an opportunity that she wouldn't get again. There was too much at stake. Miriam stepped into the moment, and her courage changed the history of the Hebrew people, and the history of the world. I believe that we will get several moments of opportunity in our lives as Christians. And if we don't understand how the Holy Spirit sets things up, we might miss them. It's in these moments of opportunity that we get to step into our purpose for which God has created us and empowered us. Perhaps a friend tells you about some struggle they're having, or a physical ailment they're experiencing. As they are talking, the Holy Spirit nudges you. Offer to pray for them right here and right now to say, can I pray for you and then do it? If you do, there's a chance they'll say, sure. And as you pray for them, they might feel the peace of Christ. They'll definitely feel the love of Christ. They might experience the healing of Christ. And that might make them want to know more about Jesus. They might even end up 
coming to know Christ as Savior and Lord and spending eternity with him. But maybe you've never done that before. You've never prayed with somebody before. What if they think you're weird? Will you courageously seize that moment or shrink back and let the moment pass? The Holy Spirit setting you up. How will you respond? Perhaps we're talking with a neighbor in our driveway and church comes up. They say they haven't been to church in a while, or maybe they've never been to church. You have about five seconds to decide how to respond. Will you say, I go to Crossroads. You ought to come with me sometime. I can pick you up if you want to go on Sunday. You can sit next to me. They have fabulous donuts there. Or will you just stand there and change the subject? You probably won't get that window again. How will you respond? Or perhaps you've been coming to church or watching online for some time, and you hear about an opportunity to serve or participate in a small group or some ministry experience. You might even be sitting in a pew and have a connection card right in front of you that you could fill out and take that step. The Holy Spirit whispers, you could do that. You might meet some really great people. You might like it, but you're afraid or you're not sure it's for you. So what will you do? I've heard it said many times that faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And I believe that's true. I mean, you know, metaphorically. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Maybe God is putting an opportunity in front of you right now, and you know it's there, and that if you wait, it will pass. Is God calling you to courageously step out like Miriam? One courageous act might change your story and the story of countless others in ways that you could never, ever dream. A final application we see in our text is this. In times of desperation, God often does his best work. Throughout the history of God's people, we usually see God intervening in times when hope is pretty much lost. The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, but the worse they were treated, the more God multiplied them, and it says, the stronger they became. Pharaoh commands the midwives to kill the baby boys. They refuse And God miraculously protects them and blesses them with their own children as a result of their obedience. And God continues to bless and multiply the Hebrew people. Pharaoh commands the male Hebrew boys to be thrown into the Nile. And when Moses, the future leader of Israel, is placed into the Nile, God moves in mysterious ways. And Pharaoh's own daughter rescues him, protects him, pays his mother a living wage, and then raises him as royalty right under the thumb of the man who wanted all the Hebrew babies dead. Most of the time, when people have very significant God stories, it's tied to a situation in their life where they really had no hope unless God moved in. Paul talks about this kind of thing in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when he says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, 
so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He who rescued us from so deadly a peril will continue to rescue us. On him we have set our hope that he will rescue us again. You know, God doesn't do amazing things through self-reliant people, but through people who are totally reliant upon God who raises the dead. As we move into those moments of opportunity, as we take the next step of faith that he tells us to take, just one step, God then moves on our behalf. History changes through our efforts. So if you're feeling utterly, unbearably crushed right now, if you're feeling weak and uncertain, possibly even despairing of life itself, God is inviting you in this moment to rely not on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. He loves to come through for us in ways that nobody else can, in times that no one else is. And as he does, he leads us along the path of fulfilling our purpose, which is unique to us, which is for his glory and our good, and which requires our cooperation. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you spared Moses. I thank you that his mom got a crazy idea and she did it, not knowing what would happen. I thank you that Miriam had the courage to do what young women surely would be afraid to do in that situation. She did it. I thank you that Pharaoh's heart had mercy because you worked in her heart and you led her to take a courageous step even against her father's malicious wishes. God, I pray that you would help all of us to walk boldly along the path that you have for us. Lord, let us not compare ourselves to others. Let's not let's try to not be uh, try to be someone we're not. Let's cooperate with you, seek your glory and not our own. And now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us as we say, "Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And now let us declare together what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. listening to our podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified of our most recent content. If you have any comments or questions for us, feel free to jump over to WashingtonCrossroads.com. Thank you again and have a great week.